Hi, my name's Andrew Skipper. I'm head of the Africa practice at Hogan Lovells, and I have wide-ranging Africa experience from business to art and culture. I'm co-vice chair of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art, and I'm co-chair of the UK government's Africa Investors Group. This is the fourth series of the A Perspective podcast, in which I've been having conversations with some of Africa's top business minds and investors, alongside key cultural influences. People are deeply committed to building on the continent and spreading the word and the vision in a diverse way. They're certainly pulling no punches about the problems, but they're also spotting and delivering on enormous opportunities. So today, uh, we're turning to Charlie Robertson. Charlie is Global Chief Economist and Head of Macro Strategy at Renaissance Capital. Focused on emerging frontier and Africa markets, Charlie is often rated number one for commentary on emerging Europe or frontier Africa. A TED Global speaker, Charlie is a well-known and forthright commentator on global economies and is, in his own words, very curious and dedicated to trying to work out what happens next. So am I. So welcome, Charlie, and let's find <laughs> out what's you. going on next. Great to see you again. Yeah, nice to see you too. Yeah. So, Charlie, um, the last 12 months, um, how has, uh, has that made you reassess any of your previous assumptions, would you say? Um, no, but it's given me a, a little bit of time um, to to try and put them together. So what I've been working on for the last month or two, actually, is, is trying to put together all the research we've been pushing out on thematic issues that have been so important. And I'm hoping to get them published. I have to find a publisher first. Um, but but that's the plan for for sometime later this year. But it just means I've been reevaluating the big issues that we've been looking at from education, uh, electricity, uh, investment, fertility, and uh, and trying to wrap it together in just one one book, which will hopefully explain it all, uh, and then I can move on to the next thing. Well, it's um, well, that's great. That's a great. Firstly, it's a great challenge to any publishers listening to this at the moment, and I'm sure you can find Charlie at rencap.com, and uh, or via me at Andrew Skipper at HoganLovells.com. But that's so, Charlie. And the last thing I, I think one of the last things I saw you write, actually picking up on that, is. Um, why is the 21st century going to be so much better for Africa? Give me some background to, to, to what that question means to you and why you think it will be so much better for Africa. Um, I, I mean, I think it's already, the data's already there to, uh, to prove this is going to happen. One of the themes that we've been looking at for well over a decade now is education. And one of the most interesting books I, I dug up in the London School of Economics library on a dusty shelf that no one was paying much attention to because who cares about these things anymore, was, was the issue of adult literacy, um, being able to read and write, and how important that was for industrialization. So what I've been grappling with for the last few years is why, why is Bangladesh doing so well? Why is Vietnam doing so well in terms of industrialization? Um, and when are we going to see the same things across Africa? And this book said you need to have 70 to 80% adult literacy to industrialize. And if it's below 40%, you can't even grow sustainably. And this is a theory from the 1960s. And it looked back at Spain's Industrial Revolution, the English Industrial Revolution. And, and when we cross-checked it with modern data, it still holds. This theory written in the 1960s still holds. And so the experience of much of sub-Sahara, in fact, most of the continent in the 20th century, was that they started off with adult literacy rates below 40%. The, the colonial regimes just did a bad job um, educating populations. And as a consequence, countries couldn't industrialize. And, and that meant that you were reliant on subsistence agriculture 
fertility rates are very high, and I can come to that a bit later. Yeah. Um, so you've got massive population increase, but people can't go and get those high higher paid jobs in, in usually textiles manufacturing. But that has massively changed now. Across the continent, 70 to 80% adult literacy is now the norm, which means the human capital is there today for, for, for Africa to say eventually goodbye to natural resources and, and hello to kind of technolo- technology and human capital driving growth. I'm, I've heard you comment on this before because most people start from a slightly different point of view, don't they? They say, well, we need to have... <laughs> We need to have power, we need to have bridges and roads, and then we can industrialise and then we can take things forward. You're taking it a step further back from that. So if you were spending money, and a lot of it, you would be spending it on what? On education? On, yes. On um, education about birth control, for example. How, how, so bring in the education and the fertility point. Well, uh, the, the, the education spending story is... Uh is, is a part of it. Um, the, the lesson that, that South Korea showed the world between 1945 and 1970, their adult literacy rate went from about 22% in 1945 to around uh, 90% in, in 1970. There's a bit of conflict over the data. So within 25 years, they went from couldn't grow sustainably to can industrialize. And in 1972, um, over 20% of their GDP was manufacturing. Um, so it, it absolutely worked. What we still see today in countries like uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, Somalia, Chad, are adult literacy rates below 40%. So two things are required. First, make sure that your primary school educational setup is delivering basic literacy in any language. It doesn't have to be in English or French or anything else, any language. Uh, and the second thing is to, is to consider an adult literacy campaign. So, so people in Korea had to, you know, spend the evenings going to evening class to, to learn how to, to read and write. That can transform a country in a very short period of time. And certainly, given if we, if we look at 1960 to 2020 in Chad or Mali or Burkina Faso or Somalia, you'd say there's not been a vast amount of improvement. But that's the last 60 years. But the next 25, if governments spend right, could be, could be hugely better. The second issue then... And we can't ignore infrastructure because there's two things you need to get a, a decently functioning textile factory, which is usually the first thing that, that people move out of subsistence agriculture. They go to the city and they get a job in a textile mill. That's the normal stage of development. You need two things, educated people, well enough educated people and electricity. Because if you haven't got electricity, that, that textile mill isn't going to work. But the problem with getting electricity is it's bloody expensive. So the second question, and this has been much more on my mind in the last two to three years, is why is it so expensive? And the reason it's so expensive is because interest rates are so high in everywhere from Kenya to Nigeria to Angola. So many of the countries that do need infrastructure can't afford it. The common contrast is to say, well, look at China. China's got got low interest rates. We'll just borrow from China. Yes, that's an option, but it it leads to debt crisis concerns. The, The better option is to use your own local savings like Morocco has done. So the question then is, why does Morocco have 2% interest rates while it's double digit in so much of sub-Sahara? And the answer is fertility, that when you have small families, you have high savings in your country. When you've got big families, you've got no savings in your country. And that then impacts on the interest rates. And so it becomes very expensive to roll out infrastructure because, because you haven't got the savings. 
So you've got to get fertility rates down. And that then is part and parcel of the education story. Of the too. education, I see. So, yeah. You educate girls in particular, it really helps, makes a big difference. They stay in school three or four years longer, particularly if you, if, if, if you can get high secondary school enrollment as well. And, and that means they start having kids at a later age. And that, that already reduces the number of kids a typical family will have. You need to have under three kids per woman on average to see this big rise in bank deposits, savings that enable you to, to roll out your own infrastructure at low cost. That's good. And you've been talking, I think, recently about Egypt as an exemplar of that, maybe. Is that how you, I mean, maybe yep. tell me a bit about what you well, see happening. That's a change story. So, so Morocco okay. already happened. It happened back in the mid-1990s. I mean, I did have a conversation with, I think, a deputy governor of the Central Bank of Morocco. And I said, where, where are your savings from? This is before we'd done the work on demographics. Yeah. And he said, we stole it all from Spain in 1492 when they threw us out of the country. But it turns out, it turns out the big change was actually about, about their fertility rate going below three children per woman in the 1990s. And suddenly their, their deposits in the banking system are massive. They've, they've gone up to over 100% of GDP. Huge amounts of cash in Morocco. So much cash in Morocco, in fact, that you're seeing Moroccan banks start to expand across West Africa to take some of those savings that they've got and start to use them in, in places that can get a better return. Now, that's already happened. And, and Morocco's industrializing and cars are rolling out of their car factories and being sold ar around Europe. We're seeing it. Egypt's the change story. Egypt's where the fertility rate is going to drop below three in the next 10 years based on UN forecasts. And, and where the education numbers have changed just in 2010, actually, to over 70% adult literacy. That's what you need to industrialize. Mm. So they, they're in this quite sweet spot, really, in the next 10 years, where I think interest rates are going to fall thanks to, to smaller family sizes and, and, and rising banking system. Uh, infrastructure's going to continue to roll out, and, and you've got the educated human capital, plus 100 million people. So you've got a huge market, um, access to Europe, um, the Europeans want to see Egypt do well, so they're going to give them good, good, good export kind of access. And, and I think Egypt could be one of the interesting manufacturing surprises of the next 10 to 20 years. That's, that's fascinating. We haven't, I mean, you're talking a lot about here about Africa doing it for themselves, as it were, with their own capital. What do you see the role of the big DFIs, the multilaterals, the international, the international global money looking to move into Africa at the moment, whether it's from... DFC in, in America, which may happen, uh, and the DFIs, and also government looking to to engage. Whether in I mean, is, is it purely economic? How is this going to happen, or is it, as it were, vaccine diplomacy? How do you see it? I think there's a lot to do with global savings glut. I mean, leaving aside the official support that that might be coming from governments and so on, and, and DFIs, you've got this massive global savings glut of older people in the West and Japan, desperate for yield. So. When you're young, when you've got a high fertility, when you've got a low average age in your country, and, and figures for some countries like Niger is around 14 years old is the average age, you've got no savings. I, I don't know many teenagers, uh, particularly 14-year-olds, with, with much cash in savings, and Niger is extremely short of capital. But when you get to an average age like Japan of 47, average age... I mean, we're talking, we're talking a lot of people in the 50s and 60s, you know, who've, who've bought the house and they've got their mobile phone they don't really understand. And they've got their, their they've bought everything they want to buy and they've got savings. There's no int interest rates extremely low because of the, the high savings that, that, are, that are in the country. 
So they're looking for somewhere to put their yeah. cash. Well, you're right, because, of course, the vaccine in the UK, we've hit like 55 and we're down to halfway through the population, aren't we? So Indeed. same sort of thing. It's very much uh, easier, but trying to get any return for your capital gets hard. So for the first time in global history, I think, we've got a, a massive savings glut in some countries combined with a, a massive savings shortage in, in those higher fertility countries of sub-Sahara. So there's the possibility now that even though interest rates are going to continue to be high in sub-Sahara because of low local savings, mm. the, the demand for money uh, that's so needed for infrastructure, the African Development Bank is saying, what, $100 billion yep. a year yeah, of yeah. unmet. So, so we've got the potential now for that flood of cash to go to sub-Sahara. And to be fair, it, it already began in the last decade. We've seen you know, ramping up of borrowing in the Eurobond market. We've seen the Chinese send a chunk of their savings to, to Africa as well. The difficulty comes when, if that's not invested sensibly, um, if that's not invested in, I, I think electricity is the key next thing. After education, you've got to have electricity. But not long after that, you need good ports and railways to get your product to the port. And yeah. so the, the demands are very high and it becomes quite, it becomes quite easy for governments to, to borrow more than they should. Um, and, and that's what we're seeing in Ethiopia, uh, Chad, Zambia, which have all gone to, to the G20 and said, look, we, we need debt forgiveness, in fact. What's the role of the private sector in this? There's um, sort of talk, we've talked a bit about that, but you've got, as you say, you've got a lot of savings, you've got a lot of people with a lot of cash. Are they looking to Africa now to spend their money? Do you think they're going to get a return there or, or are they looking elsewhere in the world? And, and second point is, what's the role of China in all this? I'm hearing that China are looking, you know, that if you look at the front page of the FT, they're talking about China investing in China now, not so, you know, for the, for the moment. And uh, so wh- how, how do you see pri- private investment first and then the role of China? Uh, the private investment story is, I, I mean, I think that's been there since, I mean, 2012, I think, 2013, I gave a presentation in Boston and a huge fund manager there kind of runs over a trillion dollars of assets. And, and there was a voluntary kind of, you know, lecture I was giving about about what was going on on, on the education front and, and other parts uh, of the story about Africa. And there was huge interest. Loads of people turned up. I mean, well over 100 people turned up in this, this massive firm, firm. And they wouldn't have been investing at that point. But I think they, they had an interest already. I was in, I was in the Gulf uh, about a year ago talking to, to a, literally a trillion dollars of money in the room um, saying, where, where can we put cash to work in, in Africa? And they had a two-day event just focused um, on, on this issue. So there's definitely interest from the private sector and, and money is going to come in. The Chinese angle, I think, is a little different because what the private sector does when it, when it lends to a government is, is say, okay, I need my 5 6 7% interest rate, uh, sometimes a little bit higher, on the, on the dollar bonds. What the Chinese say is, we'll lend you the money at 2 or 3%, but you've got to spend it on a Chinese construction company to build a railway where you'll buy Chinese engines and Chinese steel for the rail and and actually possibly enjoy Chinese drivers to drive the trains that we're going to build you. And that's how you'll spend the money. So China's making, China's got a savings glut itself. Um, I, I think connected to its one child policy, in fact, but it's got a, it's got a savings glut. It knows there's a risk of overinvestment in its economy, blowing its own economy up, much like Japan did in 1990. So it has to export some of that excess capital okay. um, and has been doing so. 
yes, I, I can see the stories that they might be getting a little bit more cautious after the, you know, the, the, the debt kind of moratorium type stuff that's been required in the last year or so. But I still think more money's coming, partly because Chinese construction companies are getting contracts out of it. And Chinese steel companies are selling railway track off the back of it. So I, I think that that money's going to continue to. And is there a, what's the Russian story in Africa at the moment, would you say? Well, I think Russia's pivoting or trying to pivot away from, from an excess dependence on, particularly on Europe. Um, it got worried by the sanction story in 2014, mm. 15. So, you know, all the summits I've turned up at in St. Petersburg every year, you've, you've had the Prime Minister of India or Japan turning up and there's been a, a definite focus there. But, but the Africa kind of summit they did at Sochi, um, that I attended in 2019, you, you know, is, is Putin saying, well, we, we don't sell as much in Africa as we could. They sell massively to North Africa, but very little elsewhere. We don't invest as much as we could. We've got capabilities, the Russians are saying, in mining, agriculture, um, and, and we could be doing more. Um, and I think African governments are saying, well, great. You know, the Chinese want to put money where we are and, and private sector kind of guys in America or Europe or, or the Gulf want to, that's great. And if the Russians want to get involved too, hey, this is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. So everybody's talking at the moment about the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. Do you see that as supporting some of the trends you're talking about? Or do you think it's, um, you know, is, is it going to be good for Africa? I guess the big theme, I mean, I, I come out on the more skeptical side on this one. My, my theme is that what, what we're going to be seeing in the next few decades, or, or so much of what is going to make Africa better has just come from within Africa. It's that effort to educate people, which has succeeded in so many countries, or it's, it's the attempts to roll out infrastructure um, and, and to, to manage finances during that process. This is all about domestic Africa and fertility rates. It's, it's about what governments want to do for themselves. Now, the trade thing, I think, is part of that. There's the argument that you know we will have this, this continental free trade area and that will help us. I don't think it will. The, the comparisons that are made with how much intra-European trade there is um, or even intra-Asian trade, all of that trade, most of that trade in Asia and Europe is, is not primary commodities and it's industrial goods. You need industrialization first before you'll see an explosion in uh, trade growth. Um, so you need the, particularly the electricity is the main shortage now. Um, you need electricity to be rolled out in a really big way across the continent. Then you get industry then you'll get trade. But Ethiopians are not going to start selling their coffee to Kenya and uh, Ghana's not going to sell their cocoa to Ivory Coast and you know, diamonds between Zimbabwe and you know, South Africa. They, these are not trade growth areas, Angolan oil and Nigerian oil. They're not going to sell oil to each other. They, you've got to see this, this shift into industrialization where there's certain companies, countries will be you know, strong in certain products and they'll be selling those products across the continent. When that happens the free trade area is going to be really helpful because suddenly the market's going to be that much bigger. Um, so it is helpful. It's a good thing. I just don't think it's going to make, it's not, I, I, I'd be surprised if it makes me change any forecasts that I would okay. have. Anyway so the, the, the building blocks need to be put in place in order to, for that to happen. Take advantage which of it. Is, yeah. Which, which countries have got it really right. Would you say on the continent? Whether or not it was it was fully planned, I, I'm not old enough to know. But you know, countries like Morocco have obviously succeeded. I, I go back to Mauritius a lot because what interests me about Mauritius is is when it had an adult literacy rate of about sixty percent, 
in the 1960s, which is roughly where Nigeria is today, it was written off as a disaster, as a country that was never going to make it, that was going to collapse into civil conflict and uh, had no hope of, of ever succeeding. In, in the 70s, it, they crossed over that 70% threshold for adult literacy. By the early 80s, they're beginning to build a textile business uh, story, but they're utterly dependent on the IMF, who they have to go back to repeatedly. Um, one of the opposition leaders at the time said it was just an IMF colony. This, this is how bad Mauritius looked back then. And of course, you know, 40 years later, that's, you know, they then had the longest period of growth that any economy on the planet has ever had, beating even Australia in terms of how many years they went without a recession. COVID was finally the thing which, which broke that record. So, so Mauritius obviously did extremely well in the past. Morocco has done very well 25 years ago. I think we're seeing Egypt is moving very much in the right direction. And then there's the interesting stories that they haven't got everything right yet, places like Rwanda, but, but adult literacy is now over 70%. It's been a big improvement in the last 10, 20 years. The president knows how he hopes to start to get dollars to flow into that economy via conference centers and airlines, none of which worked beautifully in the COVID year, obviously. But at least there's, there's, there's a vision there. Kenya, I think, has, has got the education. It's got some transport infrastructure, obviously, with that railway. But I still think electricity is, there, well, it's, it's a problematic area for them. Yeah. So I, you, you've got lots of examples, I think, of, of countries trying. Ethiopia's tried, but I think it's still got quite a long way to go. The one people look at a lot is South Africa. What's your what's your take on South Africa at the moment? Well, it's, a, it's such a different story. That's the difficulty with SA is that it feels more part of the emerging market story than it does the African story, um, and I, and I see that in the markets every day. Uh, if you look at the Mexican peso versus the South African rand, they have done basically exactly the same thing for the last fifteen months. So March last year selling off dramatically and then, and then rebounding significantly in the last few weeks just selling off again it's just they are taken as two proxies for emerging markets the comparisons between brazil's trade figures and south africa's trade figures almost identical the export growth import growth i use brazil as my leading indicator for south africa it's just so in that regard it's it's a very different economy and it's also a very different stage of development they did have the adult literacy and the electricity decades ago to industrialize and and they did you know they have they have a an industrial sector which has been quite just done fairly well um, over the last few decades so they're in a very different place what's worrying what's unfortunate is that when we looked at demographics to to show what growth should be in a country um, if you've got loads of kids in your country not so many adults working you tend not to grow very fast when you've got lots of adults and not very many kids, you tend to grow faster. Most emerging markets did really well as, as they had that demographic transition into lower kids, fewer kids, and, and, and more adults. Asia really outperformed. Latin America really underperformed. But the worst underperformer in the last 40 years has been South Africa. And I think that's, you know, that, that would require a few PhD lifetimes yeah. um, to, to, to explain in full. I, I think education played a role, very unequal kind of access to education for, for extremely long time. There's a very long lag effect on, on education and, and, and economic uh, impact. Um, I think that's, that's been a problem. The apartheid regime's isolation from the world for, for so long was a problem. 
So I, I think a lot has contributed to this. And now you've got the electricity shortages as well, which, which hasn't helped. So, you know, longer, medium to longer term, I thought at least 2 to 3% growth is, would still be South Africa underperforming. Um, when I take that figure to South African fund managers, they say, wow, 2 to 3% growth, that would feel good after the last few years. You know, obviously, we should be hoping for it to be 5 or 6%. Um, but that's going to require a, a massive rise of, of investment. And, and, and foreign investors are playing a big role in that, I suspect, in terms of saying, this is the country I really want to be in. But, um, you know, there's not a huge sign of that in the last few years. There's all sorts of reasons to be cheerful, as they say, about, about Africa at the moment. Could you just sum up why I should be feeling cheerful about Africa at the moment? There's going to be a bounce of some really good numbers. So, you know, if, if South Africa, for a start, is going to ever beat it's kind of the 2 to 3% growth I'm talking about, it's going to be this year. Um, there's, there's going to be a decent chance of that. Look, I think that the key point I try and, and, and get across is the idea that countries' history doesn't tell you about countries' future. When you see a shift in educational levels, as much as Africa, much of Africa has seen over the last few decades, it changes the trajectory from, from 1% per capita growth on average to something where 3 or 4% becomes possible when governments are getting policy right. And, and that's a huge change. So, so the story of the 20th century, looking back on education, is the continent was going to struggle, and it did. The 21st century, we know, is going to be different. Um, so now it's just a matter of how quickly. How quickly can, can the infrastructure get rolled out that's going to support rapid growth? And possibly COVID will help because it's contributed to this savings glut. People have been ramping up their bank balances or those who've kept their jobs in the West. And, um, and, and that money is looking for somewhere to, to put the cash and interest rates in the West are, are even lower than they were before. So it's possible that this, this it could happen quicker, this industrialization story. As a result, so that's so yeah. As a, COVID as a catalyst is an interesting one for another another day, maybe. But uh, in the meantime, uh, as I think some minister once said, education, education, education is uh, is is definitely the answer. So, with that, Charlie Robertson from Renaissance Capital, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.